640 Toronto presents Think Tank. Two guests, Toronto's top stories. Now, let's meet the guests. Let's do that. Oh, my goodness. It's Friday. We're heading into a big weekend. It's sleep in. Get another hour of sleep. I, I'm going to see. I want to see you. I'm going to Depeche Mode on Sunday night at Scotiabank Arena. Who can beat that with a stick? Nobody. I know. I know. I got to work on the Monday morning. I'll, ta- I'll take it easy. I'll be calm. I'll be I'll be collected. I, I won't sing every song. I won't wreck the voice. Uh, we've got Brian Passviewman from uh, the National Post this morning on Think Tank. Great to have you, sir. Uh, good morning. And joining us from 102.1 The Edge. If this were like some random southern state, it'd be 102.1 The Edge. But they're not edgy enough to say the dot. That's okay. The show is Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 o'clock. Coulter and Casey Joe. We couldn't get Casey Joe, so here's Coulter Bouchard. Is that Why isn't it called Casey Joe and Coulter? Is that, that's being considered in the hallways here, isn't it? Uh, sexism. It's Sexism. sexism? Also, I love the comment about not being edgy enough. So if I ever get called into human resources about saying something on air I should not have, I'm going to pull this clip. Sheba, grab this clip for me. That's right. Preemptively. Well, remember, then you can say, I don't work for 102.1. I work for 102.1. And it's just going to cause considerable, considerable confusion. All right, let's get into this. Monday could be a fascinating day in Ottawa for federal politics. Brian, you're there in Ottawa, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. The NDP. They're flipping. This is like a mob movie. They're flipping and joining Pierre Polyev's conservatives on a carbon tax vote for all of us. Here's NDP House Leader Peter Julian. Given the panicked reaction from the Liberals, seemingly tied to their, their polling standing in, in Atlantic Canada, given that the Conservatives uh, for once have actually offered a motion that doesn't deny climate change, um, we will be supporting that motion and we will be, you'll see in the coming days, uh, giving more details about the NDP's climate action plan that we certainly hope, uh, we certainly know will be more effective than the lack of action we've seen from the Liberals over the last few years. That's Peter Julian yesterday. We'll have Jugmeet Singh on our show at 820 this morning and we'll ask him all those same hard questions. But Brian, carbon tax is in jeopardy. Um, Monday, a vote in the House of Commons and the NDP announces they'll side with the Conservatives. This puts the Liberals, Justin Trudeau, in a real uncomfortable position after years of explaining why they were unshakable on all aspects of the carbon tax. Um, how would I put it? Like the, there's the, one foot comes into the doorway and now there's a stampede. You know, one thing that was also unshakable was the supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, which, uh, you know, th- th- this whole this whole thing is really surprising. And this is kind of like the first big rift in that uh, kind of the, the bromance between uh, between Jagmeet and the prime minister. It's uh, it, it's it, it's interesting. It's fascinating. You can tell that Peter Julian was really kind of choking on his words and saying that he was going to support something that came from from Polyev. But. Honestly, this is uh, this is a huge issue right now, and this is this is an enormous, enormous policy blunder by by the Liberals. That uh, you know, with uh, you know, mm-hmm. this, this proves that their that their climate policy is malleable, that it's uh, that it's it's politically valuable, and it's uh, you know determined. And this whole thing is going to be really, really interesting to see how this turns out. You know, is it going to be that the Liberals are going to stand there to vote with the Conservatives, or are they going to stand there and say that their policy is? Uh, you know, it, it, it just politically depends on uh, what the poll numbers are at. It's a weird one, too, isn't it, Culture? Because I thought about the carbon tax last year. Rates of inflation are high last winter. So when you'd look at the weather forecast and you'd see, oh, here's a mild week ahead or here it's not going to be minus 15 every day. There's a ton of Canadians, millions of them, where that's the average temperature. It's minus 15 and they spend a ton more on heat than we just might in the GTA. So we have to view this from a national lens and maybe instead of a regional lens sometimes. 
Listen, I lived in northern British Columbia. I started my career in broadcasting in a garbage city called Dawson Creek, close to the Yukon border. <laughs> it's minus 50 in the winter. Like, it's too cold to snow at a certain point. You're plugging in your car every night. It's terrible. There is no place on Earth that should be that low of a temperature. And so I get it. It's, it costs more to heat your home. And when we look at this exemption or this proposed exemption, I guess I should say, mm-hmm. focused at Atlantic Canada, we have more low-income people using heating oil, which is one of the most, and this is this is the classic case, right, of lower-income people being charged essentially a poverty tax, right? You can't afford to necessarily invest in more efficient home heating, and so you need to rely on outdated technologies, more expensive technologies. And uh, to the earlier point from Peter Julian in that clip you played, Greg, yeah about, wow, this is finally a bill from the Tories that doesn't deny climate change. Like, oh my God, it is the year of our Lord 2023. Is that where the barrier is? It is underground. They've finally given us something that doesn't say the earth is what, 6,000 years old and we're gonna support this? My guess is, and I don't have a hat right now, but I will find one and eat one Monday if this is not the case, that the libs will cave to some NDP demand. They will get what they want, whether it's increased pharmacare, something to do with climate action. But I don't see the liberals voting with the conservatives on this. And I don't even see the NDP voting with the conservatives on this. Yeah, you you make a, a great point. Yeah, you make a great point. I've made it already this morning. And Brian, it's easily possible the liberals are huddling this morning thinking, what can we possibly do to avoid this embarrassing vote result? And they may come up with something over the weekend that does just that. Pierre's got them in a pickle here. Yeah, and, and and the liberals have shown that they're not above trying to, to trying to whip stuff into in, into their own policy things. Like for example, uh, I've had a story in yesterday's paper about a uh, a bill that's kind of floundering in the Senate right now, Bill C two thirty four, which would uh, uh, eliminate the carbon tax from natural gas or propane that farmers use to heat their barns and dry grain and, and all that other stuff that people who aren't in the ag you know seem to really care about. Yeah, but it really it's um, it's. You know, there, there there was a lot of talk about uh, suddenly the government Senate representative, uh, you know, coming in for votes and for for debates who had no background in the bill, but just stood there as a as a, as a point of contention to try to, you know, and there's accusations in the uh, in the summer quarters that uh, the liberals are trying to whip the uh, the, the Senate committee into uh, rejecting the bill. So, yeah, you know, you know, climate change is the crown jewel in in the, the liberals' policy platform, and uh, you know, and if it, it, it asked me two weeks ago, I said that wouldn't have gone down without a fight, but obviously it's uh, going down with uh, without much of a fight at all. But it's a tough way. Like, like Coulter, you paint that picture of where you lived and starting off in radio, and we'd remember our starting salaries in radio wherever we worked. So it's one thing to say, well, th- this is my circumstance. But what you get sometimes from politicians is, oh, just go buy an electric car. Like, that's a that's a real slap in the face of reality for people who can barely afford the rent and barely afford the gas to go in that used beater of a car to tell them, hey, go buy a sixty five thousand dollar car with a cobalt battery. It's just not that simple. Oh, sixty five thousand dollars at what? Seven percent. Right. right. Now, <laughs> like it's just, and then what if the battery goes after a couple of years, which it might and likely will mm-hmm. after a couple more it's it's it is a slap in the face to lower income Canadians. And when I say lower income Canadians at this point is anybody with a household income under two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Like, it's really easy to say, well, just upgrade and make your place more efficient. I bought my house at the beginning of the pandemic. We had a fuse box. I had to get that replaced uh, last year. It was $5,000 to get a new panel and rewire some some minimal rewiring in my home. And that's not upgrading uh, anything else in my home. That was like 6000 bucks. You should get a tax break for 
that. Right. Will, will you agree with that? Can we call out the federal government and say that you should get some of that? Because we, we had climate. I swear I put a ceiling fan in and I got some of it paid for on my taxes the next year. And we've just lost the plot with giving incentives. Unless it's solar, we don't have any incentives for home upgrades anymore, Coulter. Here's the thing. I actually got a copy of Justin Trudeau's American Express, so I didn't have to pay out of my pocket for it, which was really nice. But it's, it's expensive to do these things. And like, you know, I'm not I'm not what you would call a low income Canadian, although it sure it sure feels like it, you know, mm. with the price of everything going up. And so if I'm having a hard time swallowing this upgrade, you know, telling someone, like you said earlier, to buy an electric vehicle or to uh, to invest in a heat pump. Yes, there are a, w- a bunch of wonderful rebates when it comes to upgrades like these. Yeah. But t- t- saying to someone, we'll give you $1,000 off a $5,000 renovation project. Okay, well, where do I come up with the other four grand? You want me to sell one of my organs? Well, we could talk about the price for that if we have time uh, near the end of the show. That's Coulter Bouchard. Uh, we've got, of course, Brian Passfim with us. Brian, one more on poll numbers. I I think it was sort of lost in, in translation yesterday with what Peter Julian said. And I'll ask Jagmeet Singh this at 820. Some of the NDP's move here has to be about their poll numbers. They're polling at around 17 percent federally. They have only 25 seats right now. This ain't the party that had 103 seats when Jack Layton was running the show 10 years ago. No, and I think we saw shadows of that during the uh, during during the NDP's convention. You know, the you know, you know, me got a good mandate from his uh, from his party, but it wasn't nearly as big as as as, as Jack's. As you know, as a lot of other people would consider acceptable, he took it as kind of a strong message. But you know, and the NDP politically, uh, provincially, federally, whatever, is a fractured party right now. I don't won't go into the sort of the intricacies of, uh, yeah. of the Ontario NDP, but uh, you know, it's you know they they have to get everything. Yet. And I, I don't think that 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 Jagmeet Singh realizes that he's been the most powerful man in Canada for a while now. So I think that it's, it's mm. I think a lot of people are saying it's about time for him to start flexing his muscles. And this is a, a sentiment that came up at the NDP convention is that it's time for him to start pulling his weight around and start uh, using that power in, uh, in the relationship with the uh, with the government. As, as Colton said earlier, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of deal between now and Monday to see this uh, to see this bill defeated. Yeah, I think it's very possible that we don't even get to that vote on Monday. Uh, we'll keep talking about it. I gave you guys this new data this morning um, about the restaurant industry. And Coulter, I, I look and I say, I-, I hate, hate feeling like this. I used to work in a restaurant. I knew the owner really well. Here's the number that leaps off the page at me. In 2019, pre-pandemic, only 12% of Canadian restaurants um, were at risk of bankruptcy. Now it's over 50. Like, it's not going to work for everybody. It's timing. It's circumstance. It's what you put into it. It's location. But it just seems to be the one thing. I mentioned concerts. Concert industry's thriving. You know that. Live sports still thriving. We're not going back to restaurants with the same vigor that we were four years ago. I totally get it. And I mean, I grew up, my parents owned a restaurant when I was in high school. My dad had a diner. I washed dishes in there in university when I was at Ryerson, rip in peace. I was a waiter. I was a bartender. Like I, I know how difficult it is um, from the owner point of view. I know how difficult it is from the worker point of view. And now going to restaurants, I mean, less and less frequently with the cost of things. I know how difficult it is as a consumer going to restaurants. I don't have the disposable income to go out nearly as much as we used to. I also have a three and a half year old. That's no one's fault but my own. And it's expensive. You go out. I mean, I was out for dinner the other night. The service was abysmal. And my wife and I, after forking out probably close to $200, it was just kind of a rare occasion for the two of us. We also had child care. I hope it was a rare occasion. It better not be a weekly occasion. You can't complain about your income if you're at 200 bucks a week. But I get it. I get it. 
this is like a, a quarterly thing. You know, it's a nice treat. It was to yep. celebrate uh, something, uh, an achievement of my wife's. And it's like, mm-hmm. what do you get for 200 bucks? Well, you get some lame service. The food's not terrific. And then a 20% gratuity at the end of it, which, hey, it's a hard job. I've done it myself, Greg. I know you've done it as well. Yeah. It's a grind, but I, I'm not surprised. I don't think anyone's surprised. It's so expensive to go out. The, the prices feel confiscatory. And are you really getting much for it? I mean, you mentioned live concerts are thriving a moment ago. It's, it's kind of hard to replicate seeing Taylor Swift or Beyonce at home, but you can make yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? Like you're not going to yeah. go hungry. I can pretend to be an Applebee's waiter for my two kids and wife at the kitchen table totally. <laughs> uh, and, and ask for the tip as well. Brian, uh, you had a uh, much discussed and highly controversial uh, Taco Bell uh, charge with you and your wife uh, out last week. The other day. We were talking about it all weekend long. But this this just feels like a perfect circle, where, as Coulter says, it's cost, it's service. We go less. Restaurateurs say, hey, they're coming less. We got to charge more for the people that are actually coming. And it's not working out for anybody. Yeah, I was hoping I'd be, I'd be able to go a, a Greg Brady appearance about bringing out my famous Taco Bell episode. <laughs> but, uh, it just sounded yeah, like I mean, a lot of food, but I think, it's the, I think it's the times we live in. I think that's what it is. Yeah, my, my wife and I went out to talk about for lunch last week, and the bill came to $50, <laughs> which, you know, like, and, and that kind of, like, you know, contrasting to the $200 celebratory meal, you know, there was a time when Taco Bell was the place to go when you wanted a meal, but you only had a few bucks in your pocket. Yeah, like, I still remember the 65-cent taco days, and now it's like, I might as well go have lunch at the keg. You know, it's 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 a possible situation. You know, and we're we're, t- we're talking about first stories. Like my very first newspaper job was in uh, Crow's Nest Pass, Alberta, mm-hmm. and I I moonlighted as a as a as a cook in a local restaurant. So yeah, you're you're right. It's it, it, you know, the Colton's right. It is a grind. It is a horrible job. You know, I watch Kitchen Nightmares and see people getting into the restaurant business with any idea how it works. But yeah, like it's you know, you're stuck yeah. in a hard hard rock place. It's hard to fault the restaurant owners when it's so expensive to to get product. But at the same time, it's mm-hmm. like you know, eating a McDonald's is now a luxury for a lot of people, including myself. That's Brian Passifium from the National Post. We, uh, of course, have Coulter Bouchard from The Edge 102.1. You can hear his show with Casey Joe at 3 o'clock this afternoon and every Monday through Friday. Let's come back around uh, and swing back to the Ontario NDP. We had uh, MPP Catherine Fifon from Kitchener-Waterloo earlier in the hour. I want you to hear what she says about party unity with that party. It was quite controversial last week. It's been a much quieter, better week for the NDP. But I've got a thought, and I want to see what you guys think of it. Here's what she said. This week was was a really welcome reset but also i mean we have a job to do when we're elected as mpps our focus is on provincial issues on health care on housing on education we're going to queen's park every single day trying to hold what is a very corrupt government to account that's a full-time job they give us a lot of material to work with and we are trying just like with the fall economic statement yesterday to let this government know that there are solutions here that can actually make life easier for Ontarians. So, Brian, this is where I point out all I heard last Wednesday, Thursday was how in crisis the NDP was, all this dissent, all this turmoil. I saw one person get kicked out of caucus for multiple, multiple reasons. And I saw one MPP, which is her right, over the span of one hour say, hey, I don't like the process. Zero since crickets. This story kind of drove me crazy. I want to know if you can see why. You know, I, it, it's been a while since I've worked at Queen's Park, but and I, I don't have the same, you know, ear on the ground as I used to. But, you know, some of the things I hear about, uh, you know, that, you know, they, they say they're part of the party in crisis. You know, they still are a party in crisis. You know, the, you know, the, the, the progressive left has, has a real 
situation with the things like anti-Semitism and Gaza, Palestine, Israel, that that, that isn't going to go away just because of a you know quiet week of self-reflection. You know, this is a, a party that's that's struggling to remain both both you know politically and socially relevant. But doesn't the move to kick Sarah Jama out dictate that they may be moving either more towards the middle or more towards away from that extremism? I can't yeah. see it any other way. Well, they, they like to think so, but for every Sarah Jama, there's there's a bunch of other people, both elected and within the party, who feel who sympathize, who feel the exact same way. You know, she was, you know, I, I don't want to turn this into a Sarah Jama discussion, but you know, she was brought she was brought into the party knowing full well who she was, what she stood for. You know, I, I wrote an article before before her, before her by election that uh, you know the people in in Hamilton's Jewish community were very very concerned that she was going to be elected. So, you know, this is this you know don't you know you know Doug Ford's missteps aside, this is still a party in crisis you know they can they have all the you know they're they're pretty much being fed material from uh, from a government that that's got a lot of it but at the same time this is still a party that's that that's always going to struggle with uh and that's both provincially and federal but they but but they if you look back i know it's not 1990 anymore but culture let me let me flip to you here i'd make the point brian and we could i love the i love the discourse back and forth about it because that's andrea horvath's candidate that's andrea horvath's riding she's handpicked she's planted in dropped right in and yeah. and i think she owes Mart style an apology, to be perfectly honest, for for foisting Sarah Jama onto a brand new leader with a brand new direction. But Coulter, how how do you view this this party and this story? I just I just don't see it. I don't see Mart Styles' leadership being challenged here. Oh, I wish it was still 1990, Greg. I would have been a fetus, and things would have been a lot less expensive and a lot easier. You're kind of just floating. But you're not there, washing right? dishes, though. You're not getting the practical work of the washing uh, restaurant world. dishes either. My parents were still running in Eastside Mario's, even in the womb, even in vitro. I was still washing dishes. And Brian I mean, could eat at Eastside Mario's for 28 bucks with his wife, and not 56 at Taco Bell. It's a, yeah, uh, of a course we all bucks. want to be back there. Now it's a thousand bucks for the soup and salad and bread. I think this is kind of like, I think the NDP is kind of like that couple that shows up to a party and everyone knows things are a little rocky at home <laughs> and they're kind of giving each other looks all night. And you can tell like it's not going to end up well because it's not going well and it hasn't been for a while. But of course, they're going to talk about party unity. And to Catherine Five's point in that clip you played, Greg, about, you know, it's a full time job holding the government to account. I mean, that's literally your full time. You're the official opposition. What do you think your job is? And I mean, to Brian's point as well, not to turn this into the Sarah Jama hour. I mean, uh, you know, there is a lot of disagreement out there with uh, censuring her in Parliament. Sure. And you had Mike Schreiner, I think, uh, who voted along with the NDP not to do that. You've had the premier who, I mean, has has like violated the Constitution to the point of using the notwithstanding clause. And that hasn't resulted in a censure or anything like that. And even if there was, I mean, the PCs would vote it down. But it's um. It doesn't seem to be going well, and I applaud them for trying to make it look like everybody's singing Kumbaya and having a good time. But it's I think there's a I think there's a wide disparity in the views within this party. And I think the certainly the conservatives, but also the liberals do a good job of of whipping of whipping their um, members and towing the party line. I'll give it this. Uh, and, I, and I want to quickly move uh, so we can have some fun and talk about Sly Stallone. But Brian, the liberals also in Ontario are getting their act together. I think the worst has come and passed. They're going to elect a stronger leader uh, in in December. They've won a couple recent by-elections. They're not going to stay on the, on the mat forever. Well, they're going to have to because, you know, I, I think if uh, – you know, it's almost like Doug Ford before he was uh, became premier. You know, found a, a genie's bottle and, and got his three wishes. Here, he's got probably the most fracturous 
opposition I've ever seen in in the provincial government. You know, yeah. you've got one party that's on the verge of collapse, another one that that can't even like you know keep it keep itself together. You know, this is kind of the perfect environment for 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 a government to thrive mm-hmm. in. And I think that uh, you know whatever favors Doug Ford called in from above is are definitely paying off the dividends. But yeah, like they're going to have to <laughs> below. They're going to have to get this. <laughs> Coulter, did you say from below? It could be a, a yeah. medium. It could be an, like an upstairs, downstairs condo situation, a duplex, basically. <laughs> Let's play you this clip, guys. Uh, I'm excited about this. This Netflix doc debuts today. You'll be excited after the next 15 seconds also. The genius behind that. This was not an accident. This is the theater where Rocky premiered. My brother goes, this could be the best day or the worst day of your life. Something happened, something magical. You could hear the cheer from the inside, outside on the street from the theater. Goosebumps, just goosebumps. 77-year-old Sylvester Stallone Coulter with a documentary uh, called Sly. He might have come up with that on his own. I can't prove it. Um, but let's let's give uh, give the audience some Sly Stallone non-Rocky movies that are in your wheelhouse that you bought the DVD of, or, or even your parents got you the VHS or even Beta for the Christmas. Beta Max, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, there's only one movie, and in fact, I won't be watching this live doc tonight. Instead, I'll be rewatching for the 900th time Demolition Man, which is, <laughs> I mean, you used to talk about Taco Bell earlier, right? That's the only movie that matters. And, uh, you know, we were talking off the air about this Sly versus Arnold. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say like another Arnold movie. Uh, that's not part of like the traditional, like the Predator franchise or whatever. Kindergarten Cop, maybe sure. I'll double feature with the two of those films tonight. It's solid. That's a solid early '90s uh, uh, introspective Sly uh, Sly Arnold doubleheader. I was obsessed with the Arnold doc. Brian, are you in on the uh, Sly documentary? Will you watch it? No, nah, probably not. Oh my <laughs> heavens! You know, when, when it comes to Sylvester Stallone, I'm always kind of into the the campy crap. Like, what was that movie where he was like a truck driver that had to like arm wrestled when a truck or something over the top? Over you, the top. Who hasn't had to get custody of their kids via an arm wrestling tournament? All of us have been in there at one point in time. See, that was that was that was a jewel. I love that movie. And uh, what was the, wants the to parent train? anymore? I'm sorry. Nobody wants to parent anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Judge, Judge Dredd is another movie that's so awful. It's great, you know the uh, you know the, the the you know the the, the blatant ripoff of Aldous Huxley and and all this 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 kind of like nonsense of just trying to be thoughtful. Yeah. It's just sort of falling flat. But yeah, like I'm like you know Rambo's the, the, the a lot of government yeah. mandates in Judge Dredd, Brian. It's almost it's almost like modern, <laughs> almost like modern yeah. times. I feel like the government tried to control everything we did, said, and 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 took in basically is the best way I could put it. Well, we're getting there. You know, the Toronto's quickly turning into dystopia, and I'm sure we're getting to the point where judges can be on flying motorcycles dispensing justice because that's probably going to be our reality in the next few years. But yeah, working title of that film originally was Wake Up Sheeple, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> Guys, the original First Blood, come on. Brian Dennehy, small-town cop, not going to put up with any Vietnam veteran nonsense in his little town with one diner and, and a couple utility poles. That's the movie. That's the movie. Absolutely. That Vancouver too. Oh yeah, it was. That's right. You see a lot of uh, interior BC there, uh, including the uh, the garbage town that Coulter may have referenced. We'll edit that out for the podcast, Coulter. I don't want any kind of defamation lawsuit. We can. We you and I can. You and I can come up with that on our own. Loved having you guys today. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thank you.